0: well good morning man you guys are responsive i appreciate that i appreciate that it's uh, it's good to be with you today i uh, bring greetings from the saints at cedarview baptist church in olive branch where i've served as pastor for uh, a little more than six years now and um, uh, today my family remained at cedarview because my wife has some responsibilities uh, me and my wife been married for fifteen years, celebrating that fifteen year anniversary next month. i got four kids, um, three girls and a boy. The boy is third. Uh, they are uh, twelve almost thirteen, like like a week away, almost thirteen so uh, first first time experiencing parenting a teenager, so if you have a teenager, you've been through those days, hey, I'm I'm open. I'm open to the advice you have for me this morning. Then I got a a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and then a 2-year-old, and that 2-year-old is uh, turning into a a wildfire these days. Um, Now, uh, it is is a, a privilege, a pleasure to preach to you, to know that that a pastor would be willing to allow somebody else to come and stand in his pulpit and preach the word of God to me is, is not something to take lightly. It's not like, oh, he's, you know, taking a sabbatical, he's on vacation or whatever. He just needs somebody that can preach. No, this is, this is a guarded thing. I know he values, Bryce values this pulpit. He values being able to share the word of God with you all. And so for me to stand here, I know... I know this is, this is a wonderful privilege, and I'm delighted in it today. Uh, I went to seminary with Bryce, but I didn't know Bryce very well back then. Uh, we just kind of went parallel in those days in a seminary, rarely crossed paths. And, um, you know, I was, I was born and raised in Memphis, East Memphis, Germantown, and uh, never imagined that I would live in Mississippi and when I met all these guys from North Mississippi, I was like, you know, I just, I just don't know if I like these guys. <laughs> As the Lord would have it, he sent me to North Mississippi and showed me just how wonderful it is. Uh, but uh, I don't want to tell on Bryce too much, but, you know, we play a little bit of golf together. And so if you're wondering, like, what he's like in his flesh, like, I got stories for you. Golf will put you in your flesh. Those of you that play golf, you know, my goodness. But I got stories for you on Bryce if you want to hear them. Um, but today, I want to get into Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I want to take maybe a, a unique kind of angle on this. And maybe it's not unique. I don't know. We typically, when we talk about disciplines of the faith, disciplines of the Christian life, We don't think quickly about the community of the saints. We don't think about what the local church has to do with those disciplines. I would argue that all of our disciplines, whether it be uh, generosity, whether it be prayer, whether it be Bible intake or the like, all of these things are communal in their orientation. They're communal in nature. And I just want to give you... Really today, the local church, the early church, as an example of the local church that is normal for all local churches. I want to connect a few ideas for you right now as we get started. We understand disciplines, okay? The root of that is disciple. Uh, If we are disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, then we already recognize the fact that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, So we're a disciple who disciplines ourselves for godliness, but God through Jesus Christ has given us a commission in the great commission to make disciples. So when we are incorporated into the life of the church, our discipline becomes that corporate thing. We are responsible for one another's growth in Christ's likeness. When you become a member of the church, you're basically saying, hey, I'm looking out for you. You're looking out for me. We want to both look more like Christ. And as a community, we want to uh, embody the community of the kingdom, the community that will last into eternity. So there's a lot more to it. When we dig beyond just the disciplines, I know a lot of people think of disciplines and they're like, oh no, it's these things that I struggle with, things I can't do consistently and they feel guilty about them. But then you realize, hey, we're an entire community working together in these things for the glory of God. It breathes life into that. So we're disciples, we discipline ourselves and in this, as as we're a part of a church, We're involved in discipleship, our own discipleship, discipling one another. So you could say disciplines are really you taking your personal responsibility for your own discipleship. In addition to being a part of a church where other people take responsibility for your discipleship. And that gets us to really what Jesus commissions and the Great Commission make disciples. All of this revolves around the purpose of the church, the mission of the church, to make and mature disciples of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so you get that at the conclusion of Jesus, earthly ministry commissions the church, and this is so important. I've spent so much time, I'm, I'm trying to finish up um, my PhD currently, uh, my dissertation hopefully going to be turning it in in a few weeks Uh, Lord willing, but I've spent so much time trying to uh, re-understand the Christian life in the context of the local church. Uh, Most of you probably think of your, or maybe used to think of your Christian life as just an individual pursuit. I'm convinced the scripture shows us the communal nature of all these things so clearly. So now the Great Commission is given. The Great Commission can be tracked in all the Gospels, not just Matthew, where we often cite it. And especially in Luke, as he's recording in Acts, he is picking up the story where it kind of left off with the Great Commission. And so you remember, the Great Commission is given, but there were other things that Jesus said. He didn't just say, here's a Great Commission, go, run out there and make disciples. You're released, go do it. Go across the world. Go do it. No, he said, you must wait. What were they supposed to wait on? He said in in different passages, you're going to wait for power from on high. You're going to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so you see in Scripture, there are days where they are waiting. The days leading up to Pentecost, they are waiting And then what happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit is poured out. And even then, it's not just, hey, you Christians, you disciples, go out and make more disciples. No, the Holy Spirit gives the church. The Holy Spirit starts the church. And so the answer to our discipline, the answer to Disciple-making, the answer to looking more like Jesus is found in the context of the local church, the community. And in that, the Holy Spirit equips the church with everything it needs to mature, to make disciples, to grow in generosity, to grow in Bible intake, all these things. On the heels of Pentecost... Tongues, tongues of fire, we see this, Peter's sermon, 3,000 saved, and the first thing Luke shows us is the community of Christ, the church, and in its original state, some commentators say it was in its pristine condition, there's a lot to be said about that. I want to, I want to, b- before we read this, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 is where I'm going to be, but before we read this, I want you to have in your mind not days. What what we're getting is a is a picture of the local church in its very first state. We're getting a glimpse of, as we're talking about today, the rhythms of life together as the church. And so what we're reading here is not just, hey, what they did for a few weeks or, you know, hung out with them for a little while and watched them do these things. It's not It's not Luke just taking a small sample and saying, here's some of the things I noticed. No, this is, commentators agree, this is an example that was borne out over years. Years of the church's existence are packed into these verses 42 through 47. And this text hopefully will be some kind of review for many of you. So I want you to join me. Acts two forty two. hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that you help us to understand your word. Help us to understand what you have designed the local church to be for our benefit, for the benefit of one another. Father, I pray that Christ would be exalted, that in this we would understand Christ's deep love for the church, that he would shed his own blood to redeem the church, according to Ephesians 5. Father, bless my mouth as I speak on your behalf from your word this morning. Be glorified. Holy Spirit, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give you a title a little different from what's in your bulletin. I know they were uh, probably just trying to take a good stab at it, but uh, I didn't tell them anything. Uh, Titled today, Corporate Rhythms of Discipline. Corporate Rhythms of Discipline. I want you to think about the rhythms of your life, the rhythms of your family's life. Rhythms develop around a number of things, right? Responsibilities. Responsibilities. You got yard work rhythms, cleaning rhythms. It's been raining so much, I can't even cut my grass right now. You got cleaning rhythms. You got eating rhythms. You got sleeping rhythms, entertainment rhythms, work rhythms. And as we've learned this past year and a half, rhythms adjust when new things come in, like a pandemic. (laughs) Your rhythms probably took a hit, and they made adjustments for that. But they remain intact because of their value to you and those around you. These kind of rhythms are what we see here in these few verses. So a theme, I want to give you a theme this morning. The rhythmic life of the church provides the essential atmosphere for growing disciples of Jesus Christ. The rhythmic life of the church provides the essential atmosphere For growing disciples of Jesus Christ. I know you don't have any slides today, so I'll say it one more time. The rhythmic life of the church provides the essential atmosphere for growing disciples of Jesus. Right there at the beginning, verse 42, it says they devoted themselves. And this is a word that characterizes the whole passage This word is consistency, it's abiding, it's continuing in, and so you get that sense immediately of rhythms. And I want to point out five rhythms this morning, and these rhythms are not original to me. Now, the sermon is original to me, but the rhythms themselves, which he doesn't even call them rhythms, these five things are part of the ministry of the church, and I think should be part of the ministry of every local church. And I say he talking about Uh, John Hammett, who wrote a book entitled Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, a wonderful, helpful book. He talks about five areas of ministry. Today we're referring to them as rhythms. They are teaching, fellowship, service, worship, and evangelism. Teaching, fellowship, service, worship, and evangelism. We're going to walk through each one in case you didn't get them all. So first off, we see teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I want you to notice a couple of things about this. First off, this teaching clearly is apostolic. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is apostolic teaching. Jude calls this the faith. This is once for all delivered to the saints. Now, what is included in that? What is included in that? When we talk about the apostles teaching, well, do we have all their teachings or what, what exactly is in view here? I would argue there's, there's a few things in view here. First off, it is the gospel. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right here, we're, we're at the end of Peter's sermon, wonderful gospel sermon calling people to repentance and faith. The gospel is absolutely essential when we're talking about this apostolic teaching. Just as the church was founded upon the preaching of the gospel, the church will only continue to advance in the world by holding fast to the true gospel. And this is God's salvation of fallen mankind through the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, we're looking at a pattern here of sorts. The early church as a pattern. Can you imagine like, when it comes to the gospel, if we're trying to um, recreate or follow the pattern of the local church, the church that we see in scripture, if we're trying to follow that pattern, we could say that the gospel is like the thread. Think sewing. The gospel is like the thread. And if we were to lose the gospel, we would lose the thread. And so whatever you were trying to put together, just imagine it's like a needle going through with no thread. You could follow the pattern. What are you left with? Nothing. Without the gospel, we have nothing, church. So vintage must remain true to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wish to do anything that imitates this text. If you wish to do anything that imitates Christ, you must hold fast to the true gospel. So apostolic teaching must, first off, be the gospel, but also, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, it's going to include all of Jesus' teachings. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. But not only that, we got the gospel, we got the teachings of Jesus, but we also we gotta say the apostolic teaching that dealt with the Old Testament. So, as y'all heard, I believe last week from Dr. Dr. Brand, Apostolic teaching on the Old Testament. This is what Paul was referring to when he wrote to Timothy and said, All scripture is breathed out by God. And so at that time, what they had was the Old Testament. This was the foundation of the apostolic teaching. But then also we see how these New Testament writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit to record exactly what God intended to complete His Word. And so we have the apostolic teaching as recorded in the New Testament. The short way to say it is we have the Bible. The Bible. We had the completed Word of God, and so when we devote ourselves to the apostolic teaching, as we see here, what we're saying is, "Hey, we're exalting God's Word as our standard for faith and practice." Now, maybe you, you have, as you've been thinking about like Bible intake, y'all have heard a couple of sermons on Bible intake, probably wonderful. Sermons. If we start thinking about the Bible simply as something that gets us to a place, we have missed it. A lot of people refer to the Bible as a how-to manual. And I would say, no, no, it's not. Some people refer to the Bible as a road map for life. I would say, I would say absolutely not. Because you know who ultimately is in view with both of those things? Me. The Bible gets me where I want to go. The Bible does what I want it to do. Those views are so often self-focused. Devotion to God's word, devotion to Christ's teaching further manifests the reality of his kingdom. And you know what? It produces fully formed disciples of Jesus. It produces mature, healthy churches. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It is apostolic teaching, but it is also authenticated teaching. You see right there in these words, verse 43, It all came came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God used signs and wonders to authenticate the gospel message as it made progress, as it was being delivered by the Holy Spirit to the writers of the New Testament. If you turn to chapter 3, you'd see the evidence of that immediately. Now you may read this and think like, well, God, you know, I don't see him doing those kinds of signs and wonders now like he did back then. I would ask you, can God perform signs and wonders today? Of course he can. But we have the completed word of God. So we must understand what authenticates what authenticates by God's design this kind of teaching? It is the growth of the disciples of Jesus. That's that's not near as fun as signs and wonders, right? So what I'm telling you is Your day-by-day devotion to the Word of God, your devotion to the Word of God as it is preached here from the pulpit at Vintage, these things are contributing slowly but surely according to the plan of God to your Christ-likeness, your growth, your maturity. So I would tell you on this first rhythm, teaching, what do you need to do here? Just like you know you need to open the Bible day by day. Just like you know you need to feast upon God's word regularly for your own good. You need to show up. You need to show up and hear the word of God preached. You need to show up and sing the word of God. Sing the gospel. You need to show up and hear the prayers offered about God's word and the gospel. And you need to glean from the growth of others who have wisdom and understanding that you don't have as they have walked with Jesus through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. See right here, we, we, uh, we confront our individualism. I know there's been times you probably thought, I know I've thought it, well, I've got the Word of God and I've got the Holy Spirit, so I have everything I need. Well, really? The Holy Spirit gave you a community. You you find somebody that takes the Word of God and they isolate themselves from the saints of God, what do they end up doing? They end up creating some kind of heretical teaching following some heretical teaching, or they end up finding some hobby horse to base all of their talking points on. That's what happens. Not only that, like just in the life of the church, I know that some of you, you've been here long enough to see, hey, there was that person that was on fire, they were growing, and then it was like they slipped away from the life of the church, and then everything in their lives started to slowly fall apart. Now, I'm not saying it's causation. I'm definitely saying it's at least correlation. That separating yourselves from the community of the saints inevitably inevitably makes it worse for you in your Christian life. So show up. Participate. Glean from others. Devote yourselves to the teaching of God's word. That's the first first rhythm here. Teaching. Second rhythm we see is fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this word fellowship as we read it in the New Testament is, is often the word uh, koinonia. You're familiar with that word, I'm sure. Kwanonia. And it's interesting that, that Paul uses in a very active kind of way. Now I'm I'm a Baptist through and through. Like I was raised to be a Baptist, and one thing we do is we eat. (laughs) I knew I get one. I knew I get one. We eat all the time. I got folks that I've met folks in the past that. They would just be like, man, why do y'all eat all the time? Why do we eat all the time? It's like a meal here, a meal there. Why do you do this? Well, see, the Bible's understanding of fellowship is much more than sharing food. Now, sharing food is included. Amen? Amen. (laughs) I like you, whoever that is. I like you. Sharing food is definitely included, but as the New Testament portrays fellowship, this fellowship is a partnership in the gospel. It is partnership. That's why, like in Philippians, you read in the ESV, at least you read that word for fellowship is translated partnership. And so this is not some uh, passive thing that we just kind of get around one another and it's just sort of the feeling or whatever. No, this this is activity for the gospel. It's activity for the advance of the gospel. So they devoted themselves to that kind of fellowship. But there are a couple kinds of fellowship that can be noted here. First off, as we said, eating or maybe a more uh, acceptable way to say it, table fellowship. And so I understand uh, this coming Sunday, the next Sunday, you'll be hearing a, more about table fellowship. So hopefully I won't say anything that, uh, that your, your other pastors would uh, say this is wrong. <laughs> table fellowship, we see right here. Understood best? This means the spiritual fellowship that we have around the Lord's Supper. But it extends to the other ways that we practice our common bond in Christ. Eating, sharing meals together. This is not to be looked down upon. Intimacy in the New Testament was so often displayed in sharing meals. It's no wonder that the Lord's Supper is the meal that we share to express the depth and meaning of our fellowship. But you notice the very first church devoted themselves to this kind of table fellowship. They immediately valued and prioritized table fellowship, naturally testifying to the rhythm of fellowship. Here's just to be real practical, real practical. Eating is a rhythm of your life. You're going to eat. So why not eat with someone, especially the saints of God? I believe our fellowship would deepen if we took those opportunities more often as local churches to share meals with one another. It's not the only kind of fellowship, though. It says the breaking of bread, okay, table fellowship, and the prayers. There's a lot wrapped up here, but prayers, I would call this heavenly fellowship. It's the other kind of fellowship mentioned here. I would submit to you that prayer may be the most important factor in developing meaningful relationships in the church. Praying together. Reveals our heart's condition before God. Our longings, our desires, our confessions, our intimacy with God. Man, there are, there are times when I learn so much about my uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ at, at church when we're praying. I hear them saying things to God and they say things and I'm like, wow, I never knew that about them. Or man, that really encourages me to hear them pray That you know exactly what I'm talking about. It reveals so much about who we are, about our desires, and then beyond that, praying for one another guards our love and care for one another. I think one thing that made the early church so unified was the fact that they prayed for one another. You know how hard it is to hold a grudge against somebody you're praying for? If you've got a temptation to uh, have bitterness or harbor bitterness towards someone in the fellowship, you know what you need to do? Begin praying for them. Pray for them. Diligently pray for them. And that bitterness will go away quickly. It's this kind of fellowship that they enjoy, the breaking of bread and the prayers. It is table fellowship. And it is heavenly fellowship. So we have teaching as a rhythm. We have fellowship as a rhythm. All of these contribute to our discipline. All of these contribute to our growth. Teaching, fellowship, thirdly, verses 44 and 45, service. Service, 44, 45, and all who believed were gathered, or excuse me, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Very simply, this is serving one another. Service. Serving one another. There are a couple of assumptions here that I think are worth pointing out. There are a couple of assumptions. First off, it says that they are together. It assumes togetherness. If we're going to serve one another, that assumes that we are together, that we're going to be together. The Bible says right here, this word together. Uh, New American Commentary says, this depicts the gathered community with a strong emphasis on their unity. Back during the beginning days of the pandemic, I assume that you guys uh, had to Stop worshiping together for a season, right? For us, it was, about, it was about three months that we did not gather together as a church. Can you recall those days right now and, and think what kind of impact that had on you? Think about like week after week after week, how it felt like you were just being depleted of spiritual energy. At least that's how I felt. Like the longer I was away from the saints' the less Christ-like I felt, honestly. Like I was missing a part of me. I recall when we had to make adjustments, when we got back together, we made the decision, and I I regret it in many ways, we made the decision to prepare a separate room uh, for certain folks that wanted to just be more careful. So they could gather together and they watch a live stream, and so we were in two separate rooms, And you know what? I think that did more damage to our unity than if those folks had just stayed at home. It hurt. I think it, it hurt the ministry of the church because we were not literally together. Being together as the church is God's design and a necessary rhythm for us to function normally or faithfully as a church. So we use the pandemic as an example, a teaching point that tells us the gathered church is irreplaceable. I hear some folks that that sort of lament uh, technology and the growth of technology and and they say, man, we're approaching the days when churches will just be uh, purely online. And I say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. As long as as the Spirit is indwelling believers and they are devoting themselves to the Word of God, believing the Gospel, they will come together. There's nothing that's going to keep that from happening. We will come together. Service assumes this kind of unity, this kind of togetherness, but also the assumption is that sacrifices are made. It assumes togetherness and it assumes sacrifice. Their togetherness allowed them to see and know the needs before them so that they could sacrificially meet each other's needs. It says they had all things in common, which led them to sell their possessions and service to one another. Remember, this is a rhythm. This is a normal recurring pattern practiced by the church. And so when you think about stories like Ananias and Sapphira, you remember just a couple of chapters, they, they said, hey, we, we, we sold it all, we're giving it all to the church, and then it was uncovered that they were lying. That they had lied to the Holy Spirit, and then God did what? Struck them dead right there. You know, it's, it's hard to devalue this kind of service when something like that happens. We don't think much about, you know, maybe, maybe a white lie about how I'm contributing or what I bring to the table or how I'm functioning as a part of the church, what I'm willing to do, how much sacrifice I have actually made. These folks, they were executed on the spot because of this devaluing ...of service. Positively, the testimony of the early church was that every time a need arose, the church mobilized to meet it. You know how platelets work in the body? You have a wound or something like this, the platelets, they rush to the wound. They rush to the wound and and if it's bleeding, they stop the bleeding... They immediately go there and work toward healing. It's exactly what the local church does. And if you think about the church as the body of Christ, it becomes even more vivid, right? When one member suffers, we all suffer. One member suffers, all the rest of the body feels that pain and they go to that member and they minister to that member and they restore that member and they bring healing as much as possible to that member. This is the body of Christ. More often than not, our sacrifices in our society mean little more than foregoing a luxury. Imagine a need arises within the church and the only answer is, man, I've got to sell some valuable possessions to meet this need. Can you do that? Would you do that? For us, more often than not, it's, well, I won't be able to go on that, you know, really nice, like, $125 anniversary meal. And that's not really a sacrifice. That's nothing. They made serious, tremendous sacrifices. And this rhythm, service... It seems to be a natural response to the needs among the saints, but it also gave them credibility among outsiders. <clears throat> There's not many in society in these early days that would look upon the early church and not notice their generosity toward one another, their sacrifices for one another, their service to One another. In fact, Rodney Stark, a sociologist, from a purely sociological standpoint, examines the various factors that contributed to the exponential growth of early Christianity. And among those, it's the church's willingness to care for the sick during epidemics, it's the church's willingness to care for expectant mothers. It's the church's willingness to care for the marginalized of society. And the list goes on. That is what made them so unique in a world that was willing to cast people aside. So you could understand how the church gained favor with all the people. They served one another well. So there's teaching. There's fellowship. There's service. That service, as we said, assumes togetherness. It assumes sacrifice. Fourthly, is worship. Verses 46. In the beginning of verse 47. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Worship. We have a a truncated view of worship in our society, in Christianity in our society. I want to make sure that we have a more complete, Understanding of worship from this passage. Worship is not limited to uh, certain aspects of how we express it, like music, like preaching. In fact, I would say you'd be hard pressed to find in the New Testament that style of music was any major value for life in the early church. That's why I think it's funny. Like, as a pastor, I encounter a ton of people that. Uh, you know, looking for a church or whatever, and they list off the few things they want. It's almost never faithful preaching of the gospel and disciple making. It's almost always, hey, I just want a place where there's like really good hymn singing. I want to find a place with contemporary worship. I'm like, where in the New Testament do you get that as a priority for finding a church? And so we have this idea, in order to worship God, I need a particular style of music or preference to do it well. And so are you going to give me what I want? Do you have a product that I can consume? No. No. I'm to the point where I'm just, (laughs) as a pastor, I'm just exhausted from those conversations. But it also happens with preaching. Preaching. I've had people who I've had people who will come to church maybe two or three times a year and then in that conversation I'm talking to them they tell me what style of preaching they like. I'm like, "Look, you're never here. Why should I think you care about preaching at all?" <laughs> they tell me stuff like, "Pastor, I really like the kind of preaching that steps on my toes." I'm like, "Really?" really well you show up next week maybe that'll happen I don't know I would just say in terms of application in terms of application for you don't let preferences for style dictate your worship whether it's singing music preaching whether it's the order of the service, whatever, whatever your preferences are, lay those aside realizing that they are not that important. Understand worship as God intends it. Understand worship as the early church expresses it. The worship of the early church was a rhythm of structured gathering, as we see here, going to the temple. And then there was relational the gathering—that's as far as I'm going to define it right here. It was structured gathering and it was relational gathering. They attended the temple together and they went to each other's homes. To put it very simply, much of the evidence in Acts points to the churches gathering in the homes of saints when there was no other option. These two things, as recorded here, produce, as it says, thanksgiving and praise to God. Now, uh, turn worship toward how we actually are responding to God, to worship. Romans 12.1 tells us when we submit ourselves and we are uh, conformed according to God's purposes, this is our spiritual act of worship. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. This is, it says, our spiritual act of worship. Y'all are going through Romans, right? Have y'all made it to Romans 12 yet? Okay. All right. Amen. You could probably teach me some things there. So the Bible understands our rendering ourselves to God as worship. And I would say that this immediately, according to the, the flow of Romans 12, you get that, offer your body's living sacrifices. What does the next passage talk about? The local church how the body works together. So when you offer yourselves a living sacrifice, it immediately works out in the context of the body of Christ, the church. This is a more complete understanding of worship. You fulfilling your part as a member of the body. So we have teaching, fellowship, service, worship, that worship is a structured gathering as you are doing today, and it is relational gathering, all the different ways that you create this rhythm. One thing I noticed in your your bulletin on the back, you already have the word rhythm. That's a part of your um, vocabulary as a church. That's refreshing to me. You see the rhythm of, what was it, like eating ice cream? That's a rhythm. It is. That's a rhythm of getting together, fellowshipping together. You have the rhythm of your missional communities. These are ways that you're seeing worship played out. And then fifthly, finally, there is evangelism. You may say, where do you get that from the text? It says right there at the end of verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It is a bit of an assumption there, but how are they they being saved without somebody preaching the gospel to them? It's very clear that evangelism is happening. And we see it in the chapters that follow over and over and over again. It's the proclamation of the truth of God's word, namely the gospel, the good news, that God has saved fallen man through the work of Jesus and our response in order to have that salvation is repentance and faith. So their continual preaching of the gospel is resulting in people being saved. And we're we're really seeing two sides of this as, as the book plays it out. Evangelism is, first of all, divinely directed. It is divinely directed. The Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. It is divinely directed. Some of the first days of the early church, they began to experience persecution. Y'all know as it records, what did persecution do? It drove the gospel out further. It sent people when they even didn't realize they needed to go. God used persecution to get the gospel to the nations quickly. And within just a few chapters, we're seeing Gentiles come to know Jesus by the masses. And churches like Antioch are started. It's divinely directed. Persecution, it spreads You see these examples in the book of Acts where they had to trust the Spirit to direct the mission according to God's saving purposes. An example, Acts 16, uh, Paul intended to go here, right? And then Acts 16, he says, the Spirit prevented me, prevented my whole crew from entering a certain region in order to get the gospel uh, elsewhere. So their dependence on the Spirit led them where they needed to go. And then God did the saving. It's the same way with us today, church. We trust the Spirit wherever we are, wherever God has us in life, the spheres that we operate in, the circles that we run in. God has given us those things to proclaim the gospel. Follow the leading of the spirit, be faithful to proclaim the gospel, and you will see people saved. It may not be the numbers right here. You may have a ministry like Jeremiah. One or two at best, repent and believe, but it is God's purposes that are at work here. It's divinely directed, but it's also evangelism is missionally driven. missionally driven. Throughout Acts, we can note the occasions when proclamation or preaching is emphasized and they share the word of God or they proclaim the word of God and they open the word of God. These these many occasions throughout the book of Acts show us just what their devotion to the word of God led them to do in terms of proclaiming the gospel. They commissioned missionaries. They planted churches. All in hopes that the world would know of this Savior, Jesus Christ. The five rhythms I've given you here today, five rhythms that hopefully you already see as contributing to your growth, hopefully it'll give you maybe a better framework for why participation in the body of Christ is so important for your life. As we conclude, I want to offer you just a few real practical applications. In response to our tendency toward individualism, I would tell you combat self-interest by elevating the community. Combat self-interest by elevating the community. Instead of seeing your disciplines as a personal benefit... Do like one writer said, and turn your disciplines, which we typically think, this is me and God relating here. He said, turn your disciplines on their side. And see what your discipline does to benefit those around you. See what kind of fruit is being born in the community. Combat self-interest by elevating the community. But also, I would tell you this, increase the frequency of these rhythms increase the frequency of these rhythms. Your growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ suffers when these things are only occasional rather than rhythmic. You're here today, and I hope it's a response to the rhythms that you have created in your life. But for some folks, even just church attendance is not very rhythmic. It's occasional. It's when I have time. And those are the ones they're going to continue to flounder. They're going to continue to uh, suffer and struggle in their Christian life in terms of growth. I'm convinced of this because I've seen it over and over again. So I would tell you increase the frequency of these rhythms. If you're a, a two Sunday a monther, then increase it. Increase it. Thirdly, I would say, take initiative to serve others. Take the initiative to serve others. Don't wait for a position. Don't wait for a title. Don't wait for someone to tell you what to do. Be observant. See where the needs are and do what you can to meet that need. So many ways we can work this out. I'm trusting the spirit to help you in applying this to vintage Finally, I would tell you in terms of evangelism, find a way to incorporate evangelism into your lives together. You know, it may amount to just having conversations on a regular basis about who you're sharing the gospel with a coworker, a neighbor. Who is hold you, holding you accountable in those things? Who can you talk to and say, Hey, I'm really struggling, and I don't know what to do here. They don't seem receptive. I don't want to turn them off. You know, all these things, these questions that we're asking, don't just, don't just hold those in your own heart and mind. Share those with folks. At the very least, you can do that. But there may be some occasions where you need to evangelize together. Hey, I don't know if I have what it takes to, to like, make a connection with this person. Would you, would you, you know, go to lunch with us? Hey, would you come over for a meal? And I'm trying to share the gospel with this neighbor and and I just think I need the support here. Evangelize together. Find a way to work that rhythm into your lives together. Ultimately, I'm convinced that The Holy Spirit, according to the plan of Jesus, who foreshadowed and foretold the existence of the church in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and arguably Matthew 28, the Holy Spirit knew exactly what we needed when we were called to a life of discipline for Jesus' sake. He knew that we needed the church. He knew that we needed one another. And so as we conclude today, I want you to know, I want you to be reminded of the fact that it is not coincidence that you have come together as a vintage church. It is according to God's purposes for you and for one another. See yourself as an instrument in the hand of God, to minister to one another, and see God as using all these people around you to make you more like Jesus. Ultimately, as we emphasized in the beginning, this Lord Jesus shed his blood to make us a people for God's own possession. It's possible you don't know the Lord Jesus. I would tell you today, hey, disciplines are not the most important matter for you. What's most important today is that you repent of sin and believe on him because only his work at the cross is enough to save you. Would you believe on him today? Would you become a follower of Jesus? There may be other ways, saints, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in terms of repentance, being restored Let's obey the spirit as he leads us to respond. Pray with me. Father God, we're thankful for what you've given us in the body of Christ. That you did not purpose just to save a bunch of lone rangers and send them on mission. That the world doesn't revolve around us, but it revolves around you, your purposes, it revolves around the Lord Jesus, the King himself who came, gave his life, rose again, is seated at your right hand in victory, and is coming again to fully and finally establish the kingdom forever. Where all the struggles of being in community and all the struggles of personal discipline will fade away Father, we long for that day, but for now, we are pleased to seek the filling of the Spirit, to walk in the unity of the Spirit, as we have this common faith in Jesus. Do among us, Father, what you intend to do so that we are ready on that day when Christ returns. Day after day, week after week, Father, show us your Son, Show us his beauty, his glory, his majesty. Make us like him. We pray in Jesus' name.